We are continuing in the Gospel of Luke. For those of you who are new to Revolution, we like to study books of the Bible at a time, read the, study and read the Word of God the way it's written. And our scripture reader this morning is Lauren Lacqua. Welcome, Lauren. Glad you're here. All right. And you all follow along as Lauren reads God's Word for us this morning. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, and he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, and the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas the Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Uh, Don Wingett is a professor of astronomy at the University of Texas, and uh, he has a fascinating testimony. I don't like to read long quotes, but this morning I hope you'll bear with me because it's a fascinating story. Don is the author of 334 research wo works with 7,625 citations and 3,742 reads. He grew up in church, but as a teen, he decided that God did not exist. He says, I started out arguing and then debating, and I studied the Bible quite a bit as a child. I knew scripture, and that made me dangerous in debates. I had a list of 50 examples where I thought the Bible was contradictory that I would use. I would often bring these up and consider myself a fire-breathing atheist. My wife and I had five kids. She was a cultural Christian, and when I challenged her faith, she became an atheist. But sometime later, it became obvious to us that our two oldest boys didn't have any spiritual or moral compass. My wife and I spent a great deal of time talking and worrying about this. Neither of us gained a spiritual or moral compass at school, that happened by going to church in our childhood. Because of this, we decided that we needed to find some religion of the world and use that to guide our kids to get involved. We didn't want to just dump them and drive off. We realized that, the, that, though, that we would have to find some place to get connected. In our minds, this religion had to be at least plausible. So once again, my wife and I both started investigating different world religions. My background... In anthropology, what we thought, I'm sorry, with my background in anthropology, what we thought we're looking for was a religion that wasn't archaeological falsifiable, archaeologically falsifiable. Thanks for bearing with me here. <laughs> in the midst of this search, we began looking for places for our youngest son to go to daycare. The only one we could find would take him, him was a Christian church. When we ran into the pastor, we realized that this is someone we could talk to about Christianity. That pastor recommended some books and I recommend this to you all as well, to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. There's also a movie out by the same name, by the way, if you want if you prefer the movie over the book. Uh, Lee Strobel's book cites archaeological and other non-biblical evidence for Christ. Over time, Don trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And that, that's a great testimony that if you will just look at the Bible with an open mind, and even archaeology and history can back up what the Bible says, that you will find that Christ truly is the way, the truth, and the life. From this short passage, usually we cover more verses than that, but today we're just going to focus in like a laser beam on this short passage of Scripture, and we're going to learn, hopefully, 12 lessons from Jesus choosing the 12 apostles. The first 
thing we learn is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. And it says, in those days, well, you have to stop and ask yourself, what days? Well, what just happened? Last week, we learned that the Pharisees and the scribes were really ticked off at Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And they were very aggravated. Rather than having compassion on this man, they were all hung up in their legalistic religion. And, of course, what does it say here? They, they started to think about, what are we going to do with this guy? And they weren't just talking about throwing a party for him. They were like, how are we going to kill this guy, as you, you'll see in later scriptures, what they're contemplating. So times are getting tough for Jesus. Yes, Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And so when people are plotting to kill you, and you know that it's coming, it becomes a time where possible anxiety could set in. So Jesus does what he does as a human being. He prays to God. And that's a great thing to do. When times get tough, we should go to God in prayer. What do you do first when times get tough? Many people in our culture, the first thing they do is self-medicate. Find something to calm them down, something to relax, a pill, a drink, something else. Something to do where it's external and only a biological solution instead of a spiritual solution. Many times we get on the phone with our BFF or we go to Facebook and we rant or we do all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, but here Jesus, he goes to God. It says he went away to a mountaintop top to pray. Why would Jesus go to a mountain to pray? Because the chances of being interrupted are pretty slim. <laughs> and this is one of at least seven times in the Gospels where you see Jesus going away to pray. In fact, fast forward to the last hours of his life. The, the, Roman, uh, the, the, the religious leaders and the guards are trying to figure out where can they find Jesus. They're like, well, let's ask one of his disciples. They'll know where he is. And, he goes, and Judas knew, well, when things get tough, he always goes to the Mount of Olives, and that's where he prays, and there's a certain spot in a certain place in the garden that will find him. I know where he goes. And so that was like Jesus' routine. That was his habit, that he went away to a certain spot, certain time to pray. We need that. Man, our world is so crazy with distractions. There's always something. You got this in your hand. It's always distracting you. We need to get away from it all, find a place, a spot, a time, to pray and seek God's face. And look at the duration of his prayer. All night. I, I get embarrassed when I tell you I have struggled, I struggle to pray 10 minutes. Here Jesus prays all night. I like my sleep, okay? But Jesus prays all night. You think, wow, what would you have to say for that long? Well, let me just tell you, when you run up short of what to pray about, pray God's word. Open up the scriptures and start praying through the scriptures. Praying, especially through the Psalms. We've, not only are the Psalms meant to be sung, they're meant to be prayed. And you will deal with all kinds of issues. Envy, jealousy, strife, marriage problems, contention. Contention with all kinds of people. All those themes being covered in the Psalms. You could find one to pray about. There's prayers of lamentation where you're, you're grieving, there's prayers of rejoicing, there's prayers of struggle. It's all in there, and you can just pray through God's word for hours. I wonder if Jesus was doing that. In fact, I'm really confident. I would bet a dollar to a donut that that's what he was doing because when he's on the cross, guess what he's praying? Scripture. He starts quoting Psalm 22. Many times Jesus uh, prayed and quoted Scripture. And, of course, who did he pray to? He prayed to God. And this is where atheists and skeptics get scratched their heads. Oh, wait a minute. And they, they'll say, if Jesus is God, who is he talking to? Is he talking to himself? Just take five minutes and Google the Trinity, okay? I mean, 
We believe in one God, amen? But we believe that one God is distinctly and eternally expressed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons. Before there was ever an angel, before there was ever a person, before there was a planet Earth, you had three persons having a conversation amongst themselves. One God, but the Father can talk to the Son. The Son can talk to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit talks to God. In fact, that's one of the proofs of the Trinity is that First John says that God is love, right? If God didn't have anybody to be loved, how to love, how could he be love? Unless it was the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, and all three loving one another. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the, the, the dance of eternity. And that, that the, Holy, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, was all interacting with each other. And so for Jesus to talk to his heavenly Father, that's who he's talking to. And it says to God, not to the Father. So I believe he's talking to the Father and the Spirit. So he's talking to the, the Godhead there, in the, and that's who we need to be talking to. In Luke 11, Jesus teaches a pretty poignant lesson here. He's pretty direct. He said, what father among you, if your son asked for a fish, instead would give him a serpent? Really strong, almost sarcastic rhetorical question. Are any of you dumb enough to do that? You have a kid that's hungry, and instead of a fish sandwich, you're going to give him a snake sandwich? Is that what you're going to do? He says, or if, if he asked for an egg, you'd give him a scorpion? I mean, you see the sarcasm here, right? And he says, if then you who are evil, he just tells it like it is, and you guys are evil dads, and yet you still give good gifts to your children. If that's the case, how much more, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them to ask? And in another gospel, he says, give good gifts to them to ask. And I think he taught this twice, it's not a contradiction. So the question is, how much more does your loving Heavenly Father want to give good things and give the Holy Spirit to you? He does. I mean, we're all instinctively as moms and dads able to want to give. In fact, sometimes we, we struggle and we give them too much. We spoil them. We don't want to say no because we love them so much. Let, let, if you get anything out of this taste center, please get this. We need to pray like you're a helpless toddler asking for help from the wealthiest, most powerful, loving father in the universe. Not only does he have everything, he loves you more than anything. And he wants to give good things to you. And so when we neglect prayer, we're neglecting a conversation with someone who wants to give us everything. He said in Romans that if he who did not spare his own son, how shall he not freely give us all things? And again, all things that are good for us. You can't start praying for the Corvette, okay? Can't pr start praying for the eight-bedroom home, okay? Those are, would be what James calls praying the take it upon your own lusts. We pray for his will, right? And so Jesus made a priority of prayer. And look at this, the occasion, he was under great opposition that forced him to pray. When times get tough, start praying. Don't medicate. Number two, look at the location of his prayer. He went to a mountain. He had a place where he could get away and not be interrupted. If you look at the duration of his prayer, he prayed all night long. And this makes me think of the hyperlink to the garden where he asked the disciples to pray with him. And he says, could you not even pray with me one hour? <laughs> I'm going to pray all night long. Can you guys just give me one hour? I'm in my greatest time of need. You're my best friends. Can you please give me an hour? <laughs> and they couldn't. How many of you uh, 
have started to you know, put your head on the pillow and you start praying, and then you fall asleep during your prayer. <laughs> I, I could confess to that, right? But you know what? I don't think that's a horrible thing. How many of you have been holding a baby and you're having a conversation and the baby falls asleep right in the middle of the conversation? Do you as a parent go, ah, you fell asleep while we're having a conversation. None of you would do that. I don't, hopefully don't drop the baby. But uh, I don't think that our Heavenly Father minds that we fall asleep while he's holding us and we're talking to him. I think we can pray. You look at this, uh, the, the direction of his prayer, it was to God. Okay, We have access to that. And again, I, I confess to you often that I, I could study the Bible for hours, but prayer, it's a struggle for me. It's work, but we have to do it. The, the fervent prayers of a righteous man, what? Avail much. It co- accomplishes a great deal. So just to throw back to your childhood here, today's sermon is brought to you by the letter A and the number 12, okay? Here we go. Look at the significance of he called 12 people. That's, 12 is very significant all throughout the Bible. Jacob had 12 sons that became, as you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses sent out 12 spies for the promised land. Elijah built an altar of 12 stones and called down fire from heaven. There's, in the Bible, there's 12 minor prophets for the nations of Israel. Uh, there was 12 unleavened bread cakes placed weekly in the temple, uh, the bread of God's presence. Uh, Jesus' first words were recorded at age 12, not a coincidence, as Mary and Joseph found him saying, you know, I need to be about my father's business in my father's house. And when Jesus fed the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? 12. Um, when Peter cut off the soldier's ear defending Jesus, Jesus rebuked him saying he had the power to call down 12 legions of angels. By the way, I learned just this week that that wasn't just some random number Jesus threw out. Jesus is the greater David, right? In, in the Old Testament, King David had 12,000 soldiers who took turns protecting him, one each month for the year. And if there was a national emergency, all 12,000 would come at the same time. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm even better than David. I could call it now. And we also know that one angel killed an army of like, what was it, 250,000? So 12 legions of angels, if you do the math, could kill 8 billion people. How many people are on planet Earth right now? (laughs) A whole lot of things going on there. But anyway, um, the New Jerusalem has 12 gates and 12 foundations. The tree of life on the new earth will bear 12 manner of fruit, 12 different crops for each month of the year. It's just amazing that number, what the number 12 means. So if Jesus prioritized prayer before making big decisions, how much more should we? You ever made a big decision without talking to God? Like, man, why did I do that? <laughs> man, I got five more years of car notes with this thing here. I wish I had prayed about that. You know, there's all kinds of decisions that, you know, your college, don't just pick based on the best football team. And you just think that's silly. But did you know, every year, whatever college football team wins the national championship, their freshman enrollment goes up dramatically. Unless you plan on being the quarterback, I don't know why you would choose that college. You're not going to be on the team. You know? And that people will make all kinds of decisions based on college with no prayer whatsoever. What about your marriage? Do you need to pray about that? Who are you going to marry? How to stay in your marriage? All those things. What about retiring? When you should retire, if you should retire, what are you going to do with your retirement? You have any big business decisions coming out? Pray about those things. Are you going to make a career change? Definitely pray about that. Are you looking to buy a new house? 
Again, I've had so many people come to me and say, I wish we had not, never done this. And it's like, did you pray about it? No, we just kind of rushed into it. Point number two, or lesson number two that we learned from the choosing the 12 disciples is when Jesus calls, we should respond. Jesus calls, we respond. And it says, and when day came, I think there's, this literally happened, but I think it's also a metaphor. He prays all night when he's feeling opposition, but then daylight is coming because he's about to bring in the men who we call the light of the world. Um, it says that he called his disciples. And you notice here that uh, he called them out from a great crowd. Verse 17, we'll read later. So get the mental picture. We think of just the 12, and he says, okay, I want you guys to be apostles. He's like, no, I want all my disciples, everybody who is following me. And at this point, there's a great crowd, maybe hundreds of people we don't know. We know at Pentecost, there was 120 in the upper room called his disciples, which is 12 times 10, right? And so here's a, maybe a crowd of hundreds, and he says, okay, I want you, 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 you. And he's picking out from the crowd the 12. He chose, from the, chose them from the crowd. Romans 8, 28, many of you know this by heart. And it says, and we know, God's people know that all things, all circumstances, good and bad, work together for good, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to notice the priority and the order that's set forth demonstrating the priority. Loving God and being called. Loving God and being called. A lot of people want God to call them without loving God. God says, no, you love me, then I call you. And these disciples, he had been discipling for a while before he called them, some to be apostles. So this emphasizes lesson number three. Relationship first, and then responsibility follows. He appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles. Why did he do that? So that they might be what? With him. Okay, that's important. He wants that relationship. He's not just delegating jobs with no relationship. Many of you have uh, employers, bosses, and you may not have a great relationship with her. You just listen to what she says or what he tells you to do. But Jesus is not doing that here. He's like, I want you to be with me. And the word with here means in relationship with. I want to have a relationship with you, and then I might that I can send you out to preach. They needed to have that relationship. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, this is elaborated on. This is now when they saw the boldness. This is the Sanhedrin. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been what? With Jesus. With Jesus. One of my prayers as your pastor is that when I preach to you, that maybe it shows that I studied. Okay, great. Maybe it shows that I have an education. Maybe, okay, great. But what I, my heart's desire more than anything is that you say, wow, he spent time with Jesus. That, I, that I'm spending time with him, getting this message from him for God's church at the time that the Lord's church needs it. And that, that should be the reflection of all of us. That, that people can say, wow, there's something about him. There's something about her. They've, they've obviously spent time with the Lord. We often become frustrated in or fail at sharing Jesus because we have not spent time with him first. You know, you're not going to know all the apologetics and all the arguments to share with an atheist or a skeptic or something of another denomination or another religion. But if you spend quality time with your Lord and your Savior, it's just going to shine, okay? You know how Moses, when he came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, his face glowed, right? We need to be glowing, maybe not physically, but spiritually, because we've spent time with him. Lesson number four is 
followers make the best leaders. Followers make the best leaders. And again, I've had this really small on purpose because I want you to see how many times in the gospel Jesus said, follow me. The yellow letters are when he said, follow me. And he said this not just to the 12. He said this to all kinds of people. And there's some people that could not take the challenge. Remember the rich young ruler? He said, you can eat, I can tell your idol is your wealth. So you need to sell everything you have and follow me. And what does the Bible say? It says he went away sad because he had great possessions. But Jesus asked, invited a lot of people to follow him. But the, here's the thing. Jesus does not follow us. We live in a world where we create God in our own image rather than realizing we're creating his. And we want a Jesus who's basically a Santa Claus. If you'll do this, this, and this, and this, then I'll follow you. Jesus doesn't follow us. We, we're called to follow him. I, I wish I had a dollar for every person who told me, you know, well, I, I used to be a Christian, but I, I asked God to heal my grandmother of cancer, and he didn't. And I just like, if he can't do that for me, then I won't follow him. Like, so he's your butler? He takes orders from you? You don't trust him that the good and the bad can all work together for good? We live in a culture we, we want God to do what we say and our bidding. Number two, Jesus doesn't follow the crowd. You see, that's very obvious as the, the weeks will go on in his ministry and he becomes less and less popular. In fact, at one point when the crowds were growing after feeding the multitudes, the crowds were growing and Jesus preached one of his toughest sermons ever. He said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have nothing to do with me in the kingdom. And they're like, what is this, cannibalism? What is this? And, and then all, they all just went away. And he looks at the 12 and he says, are you guys going to go away too? I mean, he's like, he doesn't care if they all do. You know, he doesn't say, hey, would you please stay? You know, he's like, are you guys going away too? He, let the, he opened the door and said, okay, anybody else want to leave? And of course, Peter, who sometimes is known for sticking his foot in his mouth, sometimes he says great things. And he says, Lord, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so Jesus doesn't follow the crowd, neither should we, okay? Most often, the crowd is wrong. Not always, but most often the crowd is wrong. Don't worry about that peer pressure. And I'm not just talking to teenagers. We do it as adults as well. Lesson number five, small groups are powerful. Jesus could have called 100. He could have called whatever number. He chose a small group of 12 to turn the world upside down. It says, and when they came, he chose 12. Okay, let's look at this real quick. Small groups, we, we do that in our church and we we have greater discussions, you know. It's, it's so interesting that when you're in a group of like 16, 20, you're not really as open about your feelings or experiences or your struggles as you are with a group of four or five. We see that small groups can provide very godly friendships. You know, we, we like to have friends in the macro, but we also need friends in the micro. Small groups can provide accountability. You're struggling with something, pornography, gossip, coveting you could share that with someone in a small group say hey man i'm really struggling with this Would you hold me accountable and then on wednesday you get a text saying how how you doing with that issue i'm praying for you that's the kind of accountability that we need for one another small groups provide help when life gets difficult i think one of the healthiest things that happens is when someone dies when someone is in the hospital before they even hear from their pastor they hear from their small group that's that's an amazing thing when it works that way Small groups also provide seeing God and his word from a different angle. Man, many times with many of you in a small group, you've taught me because you read the word from a different angle. You see things in a different light from your own personal experience. Also, small groups provide praying in numbers. We're supposed to pray one for another. Acts chapter 
1 verse 14 talks about praying in one accord. Okay? Last night I was going for a walk and I was just praying. You know, usually I'll listen to a podcast, but I just thought, no, turn it off. Let's just talk to the Lord. I'm by myself. And I went for a walk. I was talking to the Lord maybe 20 minutes on this walk. And then I decide I'm going to call a friend. And I asked this friend to pray for me. Because I, not that talking to the Lord wasn't enough, but I thought, you know what? The Bible says the, righteous, the fervent prayers of righteous man avail a month. And so if God wants me to do that, I will. And I asked this person to pray with me and for me. And then best of all, small groups and provide encouragement. It is really hard to be discouraged and depressed when you're around friends. And yet, you know what happens when you feel discouraged or depressed? You know what Satan says? Just stay home. Turn off the lights. Sit in the dark. Be alone. Don't do anything. And those are three lies. Get up and do something. Be with friends and get out in the daylight. All three of those are proven to, to make depression go away. And Satan will lie to you and tell you to stay home and just do nothing and, and stay away from people. It says also, so he used the word disciples and he also, he also named them apostles, okay? So a lot of people were disciples, but not every was an, everyone was an apostle. So let's talk about that because there's a lot of confusion in the 21st century about what is an apostle and what the qualification is. And I'm not going to give you my opinion. Let's see what God's word says. In Acts chapter 1, verse 20, when Judas was, had committed suicide, they were looking for a replacement. And they even said, hey, we saw this coming because he quotes from the Psalms. It's written that he would go away and let another one take his office, talking about Judas. So they knew this. They were putting the pieces of the puzzle together after the fact. And in verse 21, it says, so one of the men who had, here's, so one of the men who have accompanied us, this is the first qualification, someone who's been with us in, in, as a disciple following the Lord, and here's the time period, during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, and watch this, gets even more specific. This person, this next candidate, has to be from the beginning of the baptism of John until the day when Jesus was taken up from us. Anybody meet those qualifications? That's what they're looking for. One of these, that men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. To be an apostle, you had to, see the bat you had to be there at the beginning of the ministry of the baptism of John to the resurrection, and you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. He said that must be the qualification to be the next apostle. And they put forward two guys who fit those qualifications, Joseph and Barsabas, also was called Matthias and more commonly called that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's writing a letter to the, first, to the Corinthians saying, you know that people in your church are saying, I'm not really an apostle because I wasn't with all them at that, that. And he says, you know what? Haven't I seen the Lord? I saw the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. He's saying the reason I'm qualified is because I did see the resurrected Lord. And so that is one of the main qualifications. So let me go over the three. To be an apostle, capital A apostle, they had to have seen the Lord and have been eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And there's several scriptures that back that up. Qualification number two, they had to have been personally selected by Jesus. And there's several scriptures that back that up as well. And number three, they had to have been given miraculous powers. Now, if someone says that they're an apostle, do they have all three? Have they seen the resurrected Lord? Okay. I don't think that's possible today, okay? Unless you think it's through a vision or something like that, and we can have another discussion about that. Ephesians 2.19 says that the household of God, which is the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. When you build a house, you have a foundation you laid. The foundation is done. Then you keep adding to the house. And so the apostles and the prophets were the foundation, and Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, 
when the Bible, the, in one, the word apostle means a sent one. In one sense, we're all apostles. In the sense, we're all sent. But we're not all capital A apostles in that we haven't seen the resurrected Lord. We haven't been personally called by him and so forth. You see this with other words in the Bible. Um, for example, we're all called to be followers of Christ, therefore disciples. But then there are the disciples, capital D. And then you can use this word for sons of God. We're all the sons or the children of God, but there's only one true begotten son of God, and that is Lord Jesus. In some sense, many of you are old, so you're elders, okay? But then there's, the Bible talks about the elders, those who are confirmed and ordained and laid hands on by the church to, be, and to fulfill that office. So you see the distinction there as well. Deacons. Deacon simply means servant. In fact, if you want to know the difference between a deacon and an elder, uh, David Platt puts it best. He says that deacons are um, leading servants and elders are servant leaders. That's a pretty compact, good definition there. We're all called to serve, but some people are ordained to be in a special office, a, a, a deacon, capital D. We're all shepherds in the sense of that we pastor one another, we encourage one another, you pastor your children, but then there's capital P pastors, people, again, who are ordained to that office. And then the last one, we could do, do many more. We're all missionaries. You're called to go out into a certain field and share the gospel. Patrick McGowan over here, he, like, he calls himself a missionary to Paraland, and he goes out in the community to parks and different places and shares the gospel. But then there's capital M missionaries, people who are commissioned, sent out by the church and sponsored by a church and to go to Spain or to Belgium or all the different places where we support missionaries. So... It's not either or, it's both. Lesson number six from Jesus choosing the 12 apostles is be faithful over little things first. When Jesus first called them, all they did pretty much at first was just listen and learn. And then they kind of graduated to uh, uh, making dinner arrangements. You know, he, remember he said, go into this certain town and prepare the Passover. And then he said, I want you to get things ready to pack and for travel. In fact, in The Chosen, which we've referenced several times, it's, this, this is played out very well. They're wondering why they're doing these menial jobs and when they'll get to do the big things. Uh, they were also given responsibilities to get, a, to get a, a boat ready for teaching. They were also responsible for delivering messages to different towns. And then they've also passed out food when he fed the, the multitude twice. And then later, after they served in these small things, they were graduated to bigger things. Then they started preaching. He sent them out two by two. And they were doing healing and miracles. And they were casting out demons. And they were doing all kinds of other miracles. But they had to do the little things first. Jesus said, be faithful over that which is least. I'll make you ruler over much. We don't like that. We want to be in charge right away. We want to graduate to the top and be in charge. But First Timothy, Paul told uh, Timothy, a young pastor, don't lo lay hands on, don't ordain a deacon, an elder, or a pastor, or a missionary on anyone quickly. You know, you can have a new believer that's ready to go and they got the enthusiasm, but they've only been a Christian for a few years, or you've only known them for a few months. And Paul's saying, like, no, no, take your time. Our practice in this church is when we set aside someone to be an elder, they have a year of observation. And it's not a, just the elders observing, it's the congregation observing and watching their life to see, hey, are they the real deal? And then after that time, we would ordain them to that office. Being in a hurry can get you in trouble, okay? Matthew 25 says, you have been faithful over a few things, I'll make you ruler over many things. And he used that model on the apostles. Number seven, celebrate the differences. Man, what a 
diverse group of people Jesus called. And that may be too small to read, but Simon, Andrew, James, and John were all fishermen. Philip was probably a tradesman, we're not sure. Bartholomew, Bartholomew might have been a fisherman, we don't know. Thomas, same thing. Matthew, though, we know for sure he was a tax man. James the Greater was also a tradesman. Thaddeus was a tradesman. Simon was a zealot. In other words, he, his job was to kill Romans. His job was to, read, uh, uh, to cause a revolution to come about. And he walked away from that lifestyle. And of course, Judas Iscariot had a financial background of some kind because they made him the treasurer. These guys from all different aspects. In fact, you contrast two people. Matthew, a tax collector, working for the Romans. Simon, a zealot, working against the Romans and killing them, okay? And they both left those careers to be together. I'm sure they had some really interesting conversations, okay? And I'm sure there may have been even some hostility there because of that. And then you got Judas, who's in his own world, but yet he fooled the 12. He didn't fool Jesus. Jesus chose him knowing what he would do. You talk about Romans 8, 28, all things working together for good. Jesus chose the guy who would turn him over to be murdered. Think about that. And God could choose people amongst us. They're like, why? Why did they even join our church? Why is that? God knows what he's doing. He adds us to the body as it pleases him. Every New Testament church was, the following here, ethnically diverse. Everyone. There wasn't the white church, the black church, the Chinese church, the Korean church. You didn't see that at all. In, in that you didn't have a, a Gentile church, a Jewish church, a Roman church. You saw the people mixing together. You saw in the New Testament church, slave, former slave owners sitting next to their slaves. You saw people who used to be prostitutes sitting next to people who have grown up in the temple, in the synagogue. You saw all kinds of people, and it was very ethnically diverse. It was also economically diverse. You had very rich to very poor it was educationally diverse. Is it interesting that Jesus chose mostly fishermen to be uneducated, and yet when they went around the world preaching the gospel, but then God used Paul and Luke, who were doctors, who had multiple PhDs on today's equivalency, and they, they wrote the bulk of the New Testament. Paul and Luke wrote more than all, all the others combined. It's interesting how God used both to spread the gospel. They were diverse in ages. John was very young. Others were very old. They were very diverse in their backgrounds. So this tells us to, we should not look for a church or a small group where everyone looks and thinks like you do. Okay? We need people from all walks of life, from all different skin colors, backgrounds, levels of education, economic diversity, all those things. That's what we should look for in a small group and in a church as well. Lesson number eight. There's a place for everybody and everybody needs to be in their place. Again, I don't expect you to be able to read all this, but every listing of the 12 apostles in the New Testament, Peter's always ranked first. Okay? Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. It was Peter that made the great profession that um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even though Peter had his ups and downs, and he had a serious down when he denied the Lord. And how many times, people, did he deny him? Three times, you know, in theology and in baseball, three strikes are out, okay? But Jesus said, no, you're not out at my game. I'm going to still let you play. You're still at bat. You're still going to be able to do my will. And I'm sure Peter was like, really, me? I denied you as they're killing you. I said, I don't even know the guy. Can you imagine how much that hurt Jesus? Because 
it says that when Peter said that for the third time, Jesus looked at him. Can you imagine making eye contact with the Savior and you just denied him? <laughs> I would be devastated for life. And yet Peter gets up at Pentecost and just thunders the gospel. Shameless, without any shame whatsoever, boldly. What was the difference between being scared to tell a little girl you know Jesus and now preaching in front of a multitude and saying, I don't care, kill me if you want to? The Holy Spirit. That was the difference between then and Pentecost. And Peter's always listed first. Judas is always listed last. Okay, This is not a coincidence. The others are mixed up in between. But there's a ranking, there's an order there for everyone to have a place in God's church. In fact, it, Paul says it really well in Ephesians. He says the whole body, the body of Christ, the church, joined and held together by every joint with, with which it's equipped when each part, each body part is working properly, makes the body grow. When we work together properly, we need each other. When we do that, the body grows, not only spiritual maturity, but numerically, so that the, it builds itself up, how? In love. Love is the, the engine that gets the things going so that we grow spiritually. Number nine, if you're called by the Lord, you need to prepare for trials and tears. I told that to Jaime and Sophia after their baptism, and they've, they've been through the mill. <laughs> Jaime's had a very rough week, and they've just had a really difficult time, and that just that happens a lot. When God calls you to something, expect things to be trials and expect there to be tears. Consider Andrew. He was crucified for preaching the gospel. Consider Bartholomew. Um, he was beaten almost to death and then crucified. How about James, the son of Alphaeus? There was two James, right? He was stoned to death. And then the other James, the son of Zebedee, he was beheaded. How about John? Well, no, probably nothing ever would have happened to John. He was Jesus' best friend. Well, they boiled him in oil. And somehow, miraculously, he survived, and they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. There was two Judases, the, the one that was not Iscariot, he was stoned to death also. Matthew, the tax collector, former tax collector, was speared to death. That would have been brutal. Peter, the leader of the church, crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified upright. So please, he, at his own request, asked to be crucified upside down. Talk about boldness in the face of death. Philip, he died crucified as well. Simon, the other Simon was also crucified. Thomas, he was speared to death as well. Matthias was, also, was stoned to death. How did it work out for them? People say, you know, if you follow God, Christ, you are just nothing but blessed. Nothing but blessed. All those, you rebuke all those other things in your life and nothing bad will ever happen to you. Can you say you followed the Lord more closely? You've done more for Jesus than these men? And look how it turned out for them. They lost everything. Many of them lost their families. They lost all kinds of things. Atheists and skeptics will say, well, the apostles made up the resurrection to gain power and wealth. They put them in a situation where they were the oppressors and other people were the oppressed, and they used religion to dominate them and give themselves power. I can come up with about a million different better plans than what they came up with, okay? This is the most ridiculous argument. And they will say, well, Jesus was just a teacher, but after a few hundred years, the Council of Nicaea decided Jesus was God. Then what did all these guys die for? Just a man? 
No, they believed it when it was happening. And they'll say, you know, well, the Bible was written 100 years after. No, it wasn't. The Gospel of John was written in the lifetime of many of these people. First uh, Corinthians was written within 15 years of the resurrection. The, and that's why Paul names so many people by name. Because, like, if you don't believe me, check with this per person. You know, Rufus, his dad, Simon the Cyrene, carried the cross. Check with Rufus. That's why I'm listing his name and his brother's name. Because these guys are still alive and a member of the Roman church. So there was verification built into this. So um, let's see. Uh, Elvis, would you turn off the light for me? Um, this, uh, this whole theory that disciples did this and they made the whole thing up is ridiculous, and especially if they did to get wealthier power. Here's a very funny way of, of demonstrating it, but the point won't leave you. There we go. I'm pushing it, Matt. That not there? Not working. Okay. If you find it and we show it later, great. If not, we will move on. Okay, sorry about that. Live by technology, die by technology, right? Um, John 15, 18. And you can turn the lights on, Elvis. Thank you. Let this sink in here, okay? This, is, this, is, this could be hard to read. If you just realize what all those disciples went through, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it, it hated you. Okay? Do not think I can be Christian and popular with everybody. Just forget that notion. Okay? I'm not saying you should be the biggest jerk in school. <laughs> I'm not saying you should be hated by everybody at work. I'm just saying don't expect everybody to like you. Some, there will be some who just because you bow your head and ask, thank God for your lunch will be bothered by it. Will say, well, you think you're just better than us. Hey, here's where you take heart. They hated Jesus, so hey, I feel if I can be Christ-like in that way, I will. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, read the orange with me, will be persecuted. You say, well, Gary, I'm not being persecuted. Well, then are you being godly? I need to ask myself that sometimes. You know, if everybody likes what I'm doing, I'm thinking maybe I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> I, I, if we know we're going to be godly, you're eventually going to be persecuted. Now, in America, it's not near as much as everybody else in the world unfortunately, for better or for worse, but it's coming. Number 10, you have to realize being called by God is not about recognition. It's not about recognition. Um, you read about James, Thaddeus, and Simon, the Zealot. You see next to nothing mentioned about them in the Bible, but they left careers where they got lots of recognition. And now they're getting very little in the Bible. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, To humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The only way you're going to get recognition is when you humble yourself and you don't care what people think about you. You try not to take credit for things. You just give credit to God and let, he, let him be the one that exalts you. Lesson number 11, the word over wonders. The word over wonders. I'm thankful that we have a supernatural Bible and we have a supernatural God who performs wonders, but he says the priority is the word of God over wonders. Watch how the scripture backs this up. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority over, cast out over demons. Notice the, the order he put in. Preaching was the most important. Casting out demons was just confirmation that, hey, my message is true. Remember, Moses comes to Pharaoh with a message and he's like, why should I listen to you? Supernatural snake. <laughs> oh, okay, maybe I should listen to you. You see, and you saw that 
that the signs and wonders were confirmation in the book of Acts of the message. That's always the important priority. In Luke 10, it says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. This is when he sent out the 72 by 2. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't get too excited about the miracles. Okay, enjoy the miracles. I'm letting you, I'm the one making you do them. Okay, but don't rejoice in this. If you're going to pick something to rejoice in, rejoice that the spirits are not, don't rejoice in the fact that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, some people may have certain spiritual gifts where they can do amazing things, but not everybody's called with the same gifts. What we all should be excited about is, I'm a child of God. My eternity is settled. It's a done deal. I am eternally secure in Christ because of what he did on the cross. He said it's finished. That's what I'm excited about. Any other supernatural things that he does through me, in me, around me, that's great. That's icing on the cake. But the biggest thing to be excited about is that your name is written in heaven. Matthew 12 uh, verse 39 says, but he answered and says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. You ever hear people say, well, if, if God would just come down and do this, I'd follow him. And saying, you know what, you just need to believe his word. You're all, people always seeking for a sign. Jesus says, I, I'm not even giving you one. In fact, here's, here's the best sign I can give you. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. How many days was Jonah in the belly of the whale? Three days and three nights. Jesus says, you want a sign? I rose from the dead. So if somebody says, oh, I don't believe the Bible, or if God wants me to believe, let him follow, have a miracle, whatever. There is a man who claimed to be God who said, I'm going to die on a cross, and in three days I'm coming back. And he did it. There's your sign. That's what you need. And, and, and people say, well, you know, if they saw a miracle, they'd believe. Remember the rich man in hell said, Abraham, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus back to my brothers. I don't want them to come to hell. Please send them back. And Moses said, uh, Abraham said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. Let them read that. And he said, no, no, certainly if somebody comes back from the dead, they'll believe. Then they see a miracle. He said, no, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. <clears throat> so don't always look for a sign or a miracle. You've got God's word. And then last point, number 12, impact your world. That's what they were called to do, and that's what they absolutely did. The, the, the book of Acts says they turned the world upside down. Mark 16 says, and after he appeared to the 11, why is it 11? Jesus is gone, okay. And then he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. When you look at maps of the world, and you see where the disciples went, according to history and tradition, they did that. These 11 guys plus Matthias making 12, look how fast they traveled in less than a century and spread the gospel. Today in southern India, there's still a whole sect of Christianity called the, 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 um, the, the Churches of St. Thomas. Thomas the Doubter went all the way down to the southern tip of India. And in southern India, they're more Christian, where in the northern part, they're more Muslim. But you see how the gospel spread so rapidly. And give them credit. No internet, no publishing, no book printed press, no telephone, no airplanes, no cars. On foot, this is where the gospel spread. It's amazing. If you look at Islam and how it spread, here's where Islam is dominant. Still pretty much within the area that it started. When you look at Buddhism, where it started and where it spread, it's hardly spread at all. 
But you look at Christianity, where it's the most dominant, it's all over the world, except in those other areas. And it exists in those other areas, it's just not as dominant. I think the disciples did a pretty good job, wouldn't you say? So what is this gospel that the disciples gave their lives to spread around the world? That they, they literally died for this. Here's the gospel. Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the what? The gospel. I preached or proclaimed it to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. So if you don't know the gospel, you can't be saved. Here he's saying, here's what the gospel is. For I delivered to you, first of all, everybody give me a number one, of first importance, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. He not only died for us, he did it fulfilling hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament. Okay? And then, number two, give me a two, that he was buried. And why is that significant? I believe that the picture here is he took all his sins upon himself on the cross and that he buried them. Not only was he buried, but your sins were buried with him. And then number three, give me a three. Guys usually do this, okay? And he was raised on the third day. And again, according to the scriptures, the Bible predicted that he would rise from the dead and he fulfilled it. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe this? Um, I think we'll skip the video. I'll send you all the link to it later. You'll have a good laugh, but we'll skip it for right now. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we are thankful for the gospel. We are thankful for the 12 that you sent around the world to proclaim the gospel along with several other hundreds of, of disciples that helped them spread the word. Lord, it's spread by word of mouth. And Lord, today we can use kind of all kinds of tools, you know, printed page, we can use the internet, we can use social media, and those are all great, but word of mouth, I believe, is still the best way because that's how you did in the first century. I pray that you'd help us to open our mouths and share the word. Father, I pray right now for one who doesn't know you as Savior, and they've heard the gospel here today. I pray that they would repent of their sins and give their life to you because you gave everything for them. I pray that they would receive the forgiveness that you offer because of your cross. And I pray, Lord, as we move into communion, that we remember that cross and how much you loved us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. If you have questions about becoming a Christian, there's my cell phone number. I'd love to have a conversation with you, whether you've heard this for the first time or you've grown up in church. We're going to do a question and answer session right now. Uh, Chenda, would you be glad to help me with that? All right, so uh, text your question into that number right there. Even if you're watching online, you can join us with that. It looks like we have a few. We'll go through it quickly here. How are you doing this morning, Chenda? There you go. Hey, turn this. There you go. Yes, ma'am, I think so. Can I just hold it? Yes, you can, definitely. A little vertically challenged. Good morning. <laughs> How was the first gay person in the Bible? Who was the first? Oh, okay. It says yeah. how, okay. but who? Well, that's from one of our teens, I think. Um, <laughs> the Bible doesn't say a specific name. In fact, that's important. You'll notice that having a name in the Bible is important. Like the rich man doesn't have a name, and Lazarus does. And so Jesus does, and the Lord doesn't, and that sovereignty doesn't name a person specifically that I know of. But uh, obviously Sodom and Gomorrah is the first talk about that and what a wickedness it is. And there's people today that try to twist the Bible and say, no, the Bible doesn't forbid homosexuality. It forbids uh, forced homosexuality, that sometimes, like, um, masters would oppress, sexually oppress their slaves, and it's talking about that. 
that's just so wrong. It's not, it's not even close to the truth. Um, it, it, the Bible talks about two types of homosexual, homosexuals in the New Testament. It talks about abusers of mankind, which is that sin, but it talks about the effeminate. And so there's two, and, it, and they're both condemned. And so don't buy into all this uh, new way of interpreting the Bible. It was strictly forbidden. It goes against nature. It goes against design. Uh, and it's a, it's a sad lifestyle. Do we hate them? No, we absolutely do not. We love them. Many of you know people like that. I do. And we love them and care for them. But that lifestyle flies in the face of the gospel. The gospel is Christ, the, br- the groom, gave his life for his bride. And when they come together, they give new life. So that's not possible in a homosexual relationship. It's, it's called an abomination for a reason, and it is a very serious sin, but nobody specifically is named in the Bible. Okay. Also, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, how would the world be today? Uh, even worse, uh, because the Bible says that the church is the salt and light in the world, and so salt and light are preservatives holding back corruption and holding back decay. In fact, in, in when, when the rapture takes place and we're taken out, okay, the Bible says that all hell breaks loose because our influence is taken out. Not only, and then of course, then there's the seven seals and the plagues that go with it, but the world, will, it would be a much worse place. And in place, let me give you a really quick historical example. I love history. The island of Hispanola, which is like about 210 miles south of us, on one side there's Haiti, on the other side there's the Dominican Republic. At one island, identical resources, identical people, everything's the same, but one side was settled by the secular French who were atheists, and the other side was cel- cel- uh, uh, settled by the, Spain, the Spanish church, the Roman Catholic church, taught the Ten Commandments, not endorsing Catholicism, but they at least grew up in church learning the Ten Commandments. Visit that island, it's night and day. Haiti, in fact, if you go to donate blood, they'll ask you, have you visited the island of Haiti? Have you visited Haiti? Haiti? Just being there means you're at risk. The other side of the island, again, it's still third world-ish, but it's much, much better just because of a few hundred years ago, one side of the island was taught Christianity, the other side was taught there is no God. And look at the voodoo on one side and look at people being decent to the other on the other side. Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet. Do they believe he rose from the dead based on the eyewitness testimonies? No, they do not. Keep in mind the Quran was written 500 years after all this, okay? And yet, Muhammad, Muhammad said to Christians, you are people of the book, read the book, and you can trust the book because Allah gave you the book. But then Muhammad will say, well, the Bible doesn't, isn't true. But Muhammad said it was, okay? But they believe that, that God, if he had a son, would never allow his son to be crucified. So at the last minute, Allah put a... a, a um, a substitute on the cross instead of Jesus is Pharaoh. So therefore, since there's no death, there's no resurrection. But we know Jesus is not just a prophet. He's the prophet, and he was the Lamb of God, as we just celebrated. And um, Islam does not believe that. Islam believes a lot of things that are just not right. Um, look at uh, when in one of the surahs, it endorses rape. It says you can have four wives. There's a lot of things that just totally demean women. Okay, and there's just all kinds of things that go wrong. It's a very bloody religion. They'll act like it's peaceful today. I have several friends that are Muslim, and they're of the peaceful t- t- kind, but you, you got 22% of the world that is Shia Muslims, and they are the radical, violent kind. And you're talking 22% of 1 billion people. It's no small sect. They can talk about some Christians being violent. You're talking about like one kook here and there that's crazy. We're talking, you know, 
22% of 1 billion people, I don't know what the math is on that, I guess 220 million, right? Okay, that are radicalized, that believe that Israel doesn't, does not have the right to exist, that they should be driven into sea and every last Jew should be killed. Um, and they believe this, you know, they're very radical about Christians. And then Muhammad said that anybody who will not convert should be put to the sword. That's their, that's their Quran. Should we pray to the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Primarily to the Father, because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. When the disciples gave that specific request, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, okay, here's their template. Our Father who is in heaven. So here's the pattern that you see through the New Testament. Praying to the Father in the name of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, is it wrong to talk to Jesus? No, it's not wrong. Is it wrong to talk to the Holy Spirit? No, it's not wrong. But Jesus said, talk to the Father, and the Holy Spirit said, hey, those two are the heroes. I'm just the, the spotlight in the background. He likes to be in the background. He's the humble guy, okay? But he's still a person. He's still God, but he points to the other two. So primarily to the Father. But again, I pray to all three often because I believe in a Trinitarian God, and they're persons, and this person should talk to this person. So any other questions? Okay, great. All right, let's stand, and uh, we'll be dismissed in prayer. Um, all right, Patrick, would you word our prayer for us this morning?